0: that is because uh, I feel strongly that we've, it's easy for us to spend a lot of time looking at the events leading up to Jesus's death, but then we don't always pay attention following Easter to what happens after the resurrection. After people, his disciples encounter the risen Lord, what happens to them? How do they change? And so we've been looking over the, at that over the past few weeks. On Easter Sunday, we looked at Mary. She goes from being voiceless to becoming a herald of the gospel, of the risen Lord. We looked at Thomas, who goes from being a doubter to a worshiper. Nick came uh, uh, by a couple weeks ago, and he talked about how the brokenhearted become people who are filled with joy. And today, we're going to look at how the fearful become courageous, how the fearful become courageous. Now, Acts chapter 4, we're going to read from verses 1 through 22, and this is what it says. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put, in, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed, grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked, how was he healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the, cor- the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw uh, from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together, what are we going to do with these men? They asked everyone living in Jerusalem. They asked, "Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it, but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name." Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, "Which is right in God's eyes?" to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that reveal who you are, what you are like to us so clearly. We pray that this morning you would speak to us, that we would hear from you. Have your way with us, we pray. Amen. If you know much about Peter and John, you know that this event is a pretty big moment in their own discipleship to Jesus. In a sense, they've actually come full circle. See, when Jesus was initially arrested, he stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. And as they interrogated them, Peter and John were actually following from a distance. They had been with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was arrested. And the gospel writers tell us that all of the disciples, including Peter and John, ran away. They fled for their lives. Peter and John, though, were also told to follow along. Peter at a distance. Peter was from the Galilee region. He had like a thick accent. He woulda, people knew he wasn't from Jerusalem. And so his accent ends up betraying him as he tries to stand at a distance and observe what's happening to Jesus as he faces the Sanhedrin. And... People ask him, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And three times he denies knowing Jesus whatsoever, just as Jesus told him he would. John is able to get a little bit closer. John is able to do this because he has family within the Sanhedrin. But both of them watch and observe. At the moment, though, when their leader, their teacher, the one that they actually believe is the Christ, At the moment of his greatest need, fear grips them so tightly that all they can do is watch Jesus be unjustly tried and condemned to death. Fear makes John silent, and it makes Peter a liar. Now this time around in the passage we're reading today, Peter and John are standing before the very same religious council, the Sanhedrin. They're arrested and kept in jail overnight. And you can imagine that night, if th- they must be thinking, is it our turn now? We know what happened to Jesus. And we saw what happened to Jesus. Is it our turn? Are we next? The next day, they stand before the San- Sanhedrin. And when they do, they begin to quiz them. And they threaten them. And then they tell them not to teach or work in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John reply, we're told both of them reply in this way Which is right in God's eye? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges, but we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Now, I want to ask this question How exactly were they courageous? How exactly were they courageous? I think there's three things that we can see here. First, They had the courage to believe that Jesus has the power to restore people's lives. You can actually see this in in the act of them healing this man. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal, to save, and to forgive. That Jesus wants to heal, to save, and to forgive. And that Jesus had come to restore humanity and one day would restore the whole earth. And because of that, when they saw this man... This man that they healed, they was sitting at the entrance of the temple, the temple gate, they called it. And every day, he had people help carry him and place him there in front of the temple gate. He wasn't able to walk, so he would beg and ask for money for people from who would walk by. On this day, Peter and John are walking. It's like three in the afternoon, and they're going during the time of prayer. And because of what they believed, when they saw him, they gave him what they had. They didn't have money. They weren't the smartest people. They weren't the most influential. But they were convinced of who Jesus was. He has the power to restore people. He has the power to heal our wounds, the wounds people have inflicted upon us, the wounds we've inflicted upon ourselves, the things that we struggle with. He has the power to forgive. He has the power to save. And I wonder if you and I, if we've lost sight of that, that we've lost sight of Jesus' desire to restore us, his people, our marriages, our families. Do we live as if Jesus truly has that desire in our lives? When you go to work, when you come home, when you're walking through our city, when you're, are you walking with this awareness that Jesus desires to restore your neighbors and your co-workers? The first century was full of poverty, suffering, illness, injustice, And in this place, the disciples had this courage to believe that Jesus had the power to restore bodies, relationships, souls, that he had that authority. Second, they had courage to stand firm in the truth. The Sanhedrin asked them, By what power and in whose name did you do this? By what power and whose name? And we're told that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says... Look, if we're being called to account for what we've done, this act of kindness shown to this man, let it be known that it is by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Jesus you rejected and had crucified, but God raised from the dead. The Jesus who, from whom him alone is salvation found. From him alone is healing found. From him alone is restoration made possible. He is the cornerstone. Peter and John are saying, look, what we did, don't be confused into thinking that we've done it in our own power or by any other name but by Jesus' name. They want everyone to know, they want to be explicit, super clear, that the transformation that you see in this man who is now standing next to us has been done through and because of Jesus. They don't want there to be any confusion about this. They stood before the same people who had condemned Jesus to death. The ones who had said Jesus is a, um, a heretic, who, isn't, who is actually trying to lead uh, people against the Roman Empire, people, a, a false teacher. Now they're saying, yeah, it's Jesus, that one that you guys rejected. It's because of him this man is standing before you. He hasn't been able to walk for 40 years. Now he stands before you well. He's, he's been dancing. He's been jumping around. The people are praising God, and it's because of Jesus. They knew that they were walking down the same kind of path that Jesus had taken, and yet this time they didn't turn back. They didn't f- try to flee this time. They didn't say it. No, I don't know him. I don't know what happened. They didn't get sheepish. They were explicit about who they were attached to and who had done this. They weren't silent, they didn't lie. It's not that they weren't afraid, though. It's just that their fear no longer ruled their hearts. You know what I'm talking about, when sometimes you have to speak to someone and you are so nervous, but you know you have to do it. So your body's trembling. You're trembling, but you know you have to do it. You're still afraid. But courage enables you to go and do it. Their fear no longer ruled their their hearts. And in spite of the cost, in spite of the risk, they refused to deny who Jesus is and what he had done. Now when the Sanhedrin see this courage, the courage of Peter and John, they realize that they're unschooled men, ordinary men. In the Greek, it's this word idiotas. It's like it's where we get idiot from unschooled, ordinary men, but men who had been with Jesus, they were astonished. They didn't have a special training. They had been with Jesus. Their training really just came as they kept company with Jesus and became like him, and they did what Jesus asked him, them to do. There was nothing they could say to rebut the claims, their claims, because the man was standing right next to them as they said it. They couldn't deny that transformation had taken place. The same kind of thing happens when people you and I know, including ourselves, we come to Jesus, we experience healing, transformation. And those who doubt or flat out reject Jesus' claims, they're unable to deny that transformation that happens in his disciples. It causes people to wonder and ask how. What happened to you? Maybe that's happened to you in your own life where people know you from before, and when they see you living in another way, following Jesus, they're like, what happened to you? You used to value and speak in one way, now you do it in another. And it doesn't totally make sense with who I thought I knew, what I thought I knew about you. You can't deny that. And that's what's happening in this moment. These people see this guy that they've all walked by regularly as they go to the temple, and now he's standing there, his legs are healthy. They're strong enough for him to walk. And Peter and John are saying, it is Jesus who has the power to do that. The one you rejected, the one who God has raised to new life, he has done it. He is the cornerstone. I wonder, are we people who are willing to stand for truth, the truth of Jesus, even if it costs us? And there's different costs in different moments. Sometimes it really is a a, a financial cost. We might not get into a particular school because of identifying with him. We might not get a particular job, or we might not even pursue a particular job because we know it would lead us to compromise what Jesus calls us to. Sometimes it's just a social disadvantage. It just kills the conversation. Are we willing to identify with him when it puts us at a disadvantage in our careers, with our friendships? with our neighbors, in our workplaces, in our families. I'm not saying we need to be brash. It's not like Peter and John were hoping to stand before the Sanhedrin. They were forced to stand there. But I am saying, are we willing to identify with him, even if it means it costs us something? For the longest time in our culture in in the West, it hasn't really cost us very much. Christianity has been the dominant religion. It's not like that anymore, and we need to understand that Scripture never promises us that identifying with Jesus means it'll always go well with for you. That's not a promise in Scripture. He will always be with us is a promise, but it doesn't mean it's always going to go well for us. Peter and John stand for the truth of Jesus among those who had rejected the, the author of life, knowing it could cost them their lives just as it had cost Jesus. Third, we see the courage to make God the ultimate authority. The courage to make God the ultimate authority. They commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. The religious leaders essentially told them to reject Jesus, that they must not obey Jesus' commands to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to teach them all that he had commanded. They told them not to speak about what God had done in their own lives, what they had witnessed Jesus do in others, what Jesus taught. They told them not to speak about what they had witnessed, that God really brought Jesus back from the dead, that Jesus was dead, that they saw him die on the cross with their own eyes. And then three days later, they saw him rise back to life. They saw Jesus ascend into heaven, Acts 1 tells us. And in Acts 2, we're told that God sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And now these religious leaders are saying, we don't want you to ever talk about Jesus. Don't mention him. Do not make him known. Do not attribute what he has done to him. They're supposed to ignore what they've seen and experienced and heard. They're supposed to act like it never happened. And so, of course, they say, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't. You're asking us to live in denial of what has happened, this event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter and John stood before those who were supposed to represent God, the ultimate authority, and yet these ones are the ones who are calling them not to obey what God calls them to do. They're standing before a religious system that had rejected the author of life the one who is truth himself. They needed courage to speak the truth, to not get discouraged and hopeless. John and Peter had the courage to stand before these religious powers and say that their ultimate allegiance actually goes to God. And I wonder if we can do that. If we can make him ultimate authority you see one of the key differences in the first century to today is that in the first century in this time the way people made decisions and who people considered was the group it wasn't the individual it was what was best for the group and in this context this really the sanhedrin are trying to do something they believe is what's best based on what they have interpreted to be true. Now, they're mistaken. They're wrong. They've rejected Jesus. But they're saying, do not go and speak about Jesus anymore. And they're saying, actually, the ultimate authority, though you have authority and we acknowledge it, there is a greater authority that rests in God. And what you are calling us to do is actually calling us to disobey what God has called us to do in Christ. Our challenge is not the group. Our challenge is the individual. In our time, it is the individual who has ultimate authority, you yourself. In either case, we are called to make God the ultimate authority, that He is the one that we obey, He is the one that we submit to. And I got to acknowledge that's just not easy. There's so many moments where God calls us to do something that isn't easy. It's actually really, really scary. We feel afraid because we don't know what will happen. We don't know how that person will react. The Lord calls us to share something, to confess something, to give some of our money away that we actually were hoping to use for something else. All of those different promptings are scary for different reasons. But if we believe that Jesus really is the ultimate authority, then we have to do it despite our own fears. Now, how did they become so courageous? How did they ha- go from how they reacted when Jesus is arrested to how they responded when they themselves were? Well, I think there's three things that we can highlight. First, they saw Jesus crucified and God brought him back to life. They saw Jesus die, they saw him crucified, and they saw him raised to new life, and it changed things. <clears throat> they were witnesses to it. They saw it themselves, the apostles, and it vindicated all that Jesus claimed to do and be. Luke 24 says, this is, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, of all that the scriptures taught about him. Jesus explained to them that the cross was part of God's redemptive plan for all of creation. But the cross was not the end. It is part of his new beginning that you see in the resurrection. And the vi- resurrection was this vindication of everything Jesus claimed to do and be. Secondly, they believed that Jesus really had all authority on heaven and earth. Some of you have memorized Matthew 28, the very end of it, because it's known as the Great Commission. But I think it's easy to miss verse 18. Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. The reason all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus is because Jesus willingly trusted and obeyed his heavenly Father and the plan that he had for him. And it meant going to the cross. Jesus lived the life that God meant for humanity to live, that Jesus faithfully lived it. And Jesus, through his sacrificial death, paid the price that all of us owed for the debt that we, uh, that we incurred through our sin. And God raised him to new life. And because of that, he has authority over the seen and the unseen. All authority has been uh, on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. The, we go out because he has the ultimate authority. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Why would you teach them to obey? Well, because all authority has been given to him. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This authority was confirmed when Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts 1. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. When the Bible talks about that, it means he is equal in authority to God the Father. Jesus was faithful in fulfilling the task his Father had given him. And so now Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all of creation, over every created and living thing. The disciples believed this, that Jesus died and rose again, vindicating all that he claimed to be, that Jesus had all authority on heaven and earth, and third, the disciples had received the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 tells us on Pentecost, everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And this was the same Spirit that raised Jesus to new life. There's a couple passages I, w- I want to read to you. One is from Luke uh, 12. You're only going to see uh, verses 11 and 12. I'm just going to read to you a little bit before that. You won't, there won't be a slide for that says this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Then verse 11 reads, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Peter and John in their moment where they stand before the Sanhedrin are experiencing Jesus' words fulfilled. That the Spirit of God had been given to them Now they actually have the ability to say what God wants them to say in that moment. They were given courage. And a passage, probably some of your favorite, uh, for some of you, maybe your favorite passage comes from 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, which reads, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Love, power, and self control. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. Fear is a terrible master. God gives us the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that was in Peter and John in this moment is given to anyone who puts their trust in Him. The church is founded on the witness of the apostles and what they saw what they heard and what has been passed on to us, what we receive in the scriptures, that Christ died and three days later he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, that all authority on heaven and earth belongs to him, that the Spirit of God descended and fills his disciples with power, love, and self-control. If you put your trust in Jesus, you do not have to be ruled by fear, a fear of failure, a fear of being exposed, a fear of death a fear of not having control over your situations. Let me tell you, I had to live in that for the week leading up to me having to go to London because I had applied for my passport well in advance and it did not show up until Friday, the day I was supposed to fly out. And only because I applied for a new one. And a number of you were praying for that, but I had to live in this confidence that God is in control, I don't have control. No matter what happens, He is still good. He knows what is happening. But it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy, but God promises us because we have his spirit, we have been given a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be ruled by fear. He is Lord over all. He is in control, and he is a good king. He's a gracious king. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. You can face fear and you can overcome it. You may be trembling. You may be feeling at moments troubled. But you can overcome it with the power and courage that comes from God. And you and I need to be reminded of this. Because we need to have courage to believe that God can indeed restore your marriage. And give you the resolve to fight for it the courage to believe that you can actually forgive those who hurt you and release them into his authority because he has all authority in heaven and earth. You need the courage of God to believe that God can restore your family, a relationship with your mother, with your father, with your children, with your siblings, You need courage to believe that God can and wills to renew his church in Canada and his people here at Cascades. You need courage for all of this. It's not that your fear will disappear, but that your courage and resolve, you need courage and a resolve to overcome those fears. You need courage to believe that you can overcome the battle against pride to believe you can do it on your own and you do not need God, that you know better than God. To overcome the battle against lust or the love of control, of crafting and controlling how everyone sees you, ensuring that it is always in a positive light, that they don't see those ugly parts of you. You need courage to confess your sin the sin you've kept hidden for far too long. You need courage to believe that God can forgive you and that his people will still love you when you do confess him. That not only will God accept you in his presence, but his people do too. 1 John 4, verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. God has given you a spirit of love, of power, and of self-control for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. Do you see why we so desperately need the power, the courage, and the love that comes through Jesus? That scripture tells us is actually poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5. We need his power. We need his courage. Now, we're going to take...